Welcome to Food Farms and Chefs radio show, where we highlight everyone from the top industry leaders to startups and farmers that make it all possible with Chef Jean Blom and photojournalist Amaris Pollock. Hi, and welcome back to Food Farms and Chefs. We have an exciting show for you today, starting out with the marketing director for Alta Maria Restaurant Group, Kayla Boyer. Kayla, thank you for joining us on Food Farms and Chefs. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So you, a little bit about your history and your background. You went to George Washington University and graduated in um, the hospitality business. Well, actually, sorry, marketing and public relations. And yeah. And so what was that like? Because right out of the bat, like you started working for a major, major chain. Yeah. So I actually studied uh, international affairs in college and I had the opportunity as I was bartending and waitressing through college, um, had the opportunity to have my first internship in marketing. And when I was getting out of college, I was like, how can I find a job at the intersection of these things that I love, which is, you know, being front of house and and working in marketing and also the study of cultures and traveling and what does that look like? And so I happened to be um, looking for looking at at brands that I really um, believed in and thought that were doing really interesting things. And I had visited for one night once um, in college, the W Hotel in South Beach. And uh, I saw that the one, uh, the group in New York, City, the W Hotels of New York were hiring a marketing and PR coordinator. And I uh, landed that as my first job out of college, which is a really amazing opportunity. And I it really set such a great bar for me as far as uh, the standard for what I wanted to do with my life. And moving forward, I mean, speaking of what you're doing for your life, moving forward, you know, you now are participating or you are, are working under a large conglomerate of restaurants under the founder, Amos Bakahani, yep. Bakahani, sorry. And, you know, and he founded a group where it's an elevated, you know, like all of across the board, all of the restaurants that are under the umbrella of his uh, company are, you know, elevated, are high end, are, you know, sought after. And so what is it like transitioning into the restaurant industry and working for a business that is so highly acclaimed. Yeah. So Amas is a really amazing boss and restaurateur. And and the fact that he comes from a a finance background, I believe makes him uniquely positioned to be so successful in this industry. Um, So he was formerly the COO of Merrill Lynch. And during the 2008 housing um, uh, crisis, he ended up transitioning at that time. And that's when we opened, um, or when he opened, uh, Marea, which is our flagship restaurant on uh, Central Park South. And what I see as being so unique about his expertise versus other restaurateurs and uh, and what I have found to be such a um, opportunity in the way that I have expanded what I know about the industry is that the lens of financial um, uh, importance that he takes to every single piece of decision-making that he makes within our restaurants is so much more than I've ever experienced before within um, restaurants. So uh, yes, he's an innovator. Um, Yes, he believes in all of our chefs and yes, he's a collaborator, but also there's this element of, um, of, 
being a really focusing in on the details from a financial perspective, not just about what it looks like to have a successful business, but also long term, what is the revenue opportunity and how do we make that grow? And I feel that that's why this is an elevated restaurant group as Ultimaria Group is. And that's why there's such an opportunity for us to continue to be growing globally as um, he is um, also our sister group. Um, he's the CEO of our sister group, which is the um, Atelier House Hospitality, which is uh, based in Dubai. And, you know, there's just so many different ways in which he's bringing global learnings into the things that we do on a day-to-day basis. And I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up because I did want to touch base on the fact that, you know, the restaurants under his, you know, his companies are not just, you know, stateside. They're also across the globe, um, yep. which I feel like a lot of the restaurant tours that we bring on are very, you know, myopically like in, in the States, a select few are, you know, across the globe and, you know, it, it, it takes another, it takes it to a whole nother level when you're looking at, looking at a group that is offering, you know, food beverages and just an experience entirely in its entirety, um, across the globe, because it brings it to a whole nother level. You know, it brings it a whole different perspective and experience. Yeah. I would say it's interesting bringing it back to my experience at W Hotels. When W first started as a brand, um, they were uh, known for dub, for using the W I, and the alliteration of it in all of their branding. So it was WOV and the wet deck and, um, you know, all of these like fun plays on using that for uh, how they spoke with and engaged with their guests. And one of the things about where W was at that time is that they were expanding incredibly rapidly over, over, uh, sees as well. And what they were finding as they were doing a lot of these brand positioning studies was that, um, you know, some words did not translate literally when you were um, trying to um, create brands in other languages. And so how do you actually build a global brand with a language that is rooted in English or with an identity that is rooted as the W was at that time, as it was started in New York with a, with a, a, a brand identity that was rooted in New York city. And so um, in uh, 2011, 2012, we were part of the um, larger like uh, rollout of what the new global identity was for W Hotels. And because I was on the team that was based in New York, I helped to, you know, bring that to life for the properties in New York and saw all that come to life as it was brought down from a trickle down effect from the global team that was, um, you know, working on that. So it was a really cool thing to understand, you know, how you, how you translate brands and how people around the world um, connect with brands and experiences differently. Similar to today, you know, the restaurants that we have, uh, we just opened a restaurant um, in India, in New Delhi, and that experience and, you know, everything from the, the, the process to build a restaurant to the actual way that people want to dine and consume at a restaurant is going to be very different than it is here in the States. So for someone like Amas to understand the nuances of the business from globally, the global perspective is so important. And it's just, then the marketing of it is, is key too. you know, how are we talking about that differently when we're, you know, highlighting the, the wins 
for social media? Um, what are we doing to highlight our staff a little bit differently to ensure that we're championing their successes in the ways that they want to be um, championed? Um, yeah. All of these elements are, are key to um, the differentiation of, of global, um, you know, uh, cultures. And, you know, touching base on, on championing your, the people that work under, under you guys with um, you leading the, the way with the restaurant business, um, your corporate executive chef, uh, Lauren DeSant, Desteno, uh, she, you know, she's brought it, brought a whole different level to, to all the different restaurants that are under the umbrella. And, you know, you guys have some like hidden talents of like Michelin star rated, um, restaurants. And, you know, you've been highlighted in so many different magazines and, um, and on, you know, the Zagat book and, you know, like you're <laughs> the restaurants, um, and which I are, are Maria Morini, all <laughs> sorry, AI Fiorni 53 Nicolette and, uh, Brood, which is probably the most approachable, <laughs> um, location is Brood because it's the coffee place, but you know, you, you, you guys offer everything from, uh, the, the coffee cafe kind of industry to a pizzeria to the high-end, more elevated, you know, sit-down dining experiences. Yeah. Uh, you know, a total um, testament to Chef Lauren. She is a powerhouse uh, chef. She's a powerhouse woman. She's a powerhouse mom. Like, getting to work with someone like that has been such a pleasure and an honor um, in my position right now. I really get to learn so much from her. Um, I enjoy seeing the way that she manages her team. And one of the things that she's super passionate about in the restaurants and has been um, you know, a key and bringing to life is the zero waste uh, initiative. Um, and so, you know, she's, she, I've spoken to her quite a bit about that as, you know, every time that uh, the media comes to us as they're super excited about it too, you know, she, I, I get to, you know, connect her with them. And, and so I've, I've been a, 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 you know, fly on the wall in some of those conversations. So it's always exciting for me to get to hear her share that firsthand on how she started that um and a lot of that came to to life because she's always been super passionate about sustainability and felt it was really important to bring some element of like true authentic sustainability initiative to the restaurants and so when you know there was it's not like there wasn't enough going on during um covid um and yet it's during covid that she ended up taking this huge initiative on and bringing it to life and bringing it to life with like complete um you know, you know, seeing it through to the finish line. And, and so the fact that Maria was designated a hundred percent zero waste restaurant as of 2022 is like, is incredibly impressive. And, you know, the restaurant's partnership with uh, the Billionaire Oyster Project, you know, if you go to Maria, you know, that seafood and, and, you know, as, as it's called Maria high tide, you know, yeah. uh, a lot of what we, the, 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 a lot of what guests are enjoying at our, our restaurant is going to be seafood. So for us to have a partnership where we are finding ways to um, to reuse oyster shells um, and in such a local way um, as the organization is based here, 
um, in New York, it's really, it's for me, I care a lot about the environment as well. And I couldn't be more proud to work for an organization nor to work for a chef that finds um, ways to bring that to life um, in a, um, in a true way. Yeah. And I know New York was one of the first, or at least I feel like New York um, was one of the first places that I saw when, um, when it started happening, when people were like recognizing, no, we need to, to replace, we need to give the shell or place the shells back so that, you know, new oysters and new uh, coral reefs and whatnot can be formed in like the, just the, the health of um, the, the environment that we, you know, pull from where we're, you know, we're taking, we're taking the, the oysters, we're eating the fish, you know, and we need to be able to, to keep that going. And, you know, it's, it's a big deal that, you know, restaurateurs like yourself and like, um, chef Lauren have, have found a way to give back because it's important that we continue to do that and make those things available to us. Absolutely. Super important. Yeah. Now, um, we have about five minutes left to uh, to talk about some of the food offerings outside of just the seafood um, that we can, you know, our listeners can find at your restaurants. So I'm sure that you've definitely partaken of eating at all of the different <laughs> locations at yes, some point. So, definitely. yeah. So what what are some of your favorite um, items at the different locations? Sure. So I would say at Morea, I have to say the uh, the lobster stiche, which is a lobster, um, a, a cold lobster dish with a burrata. Uh, super delicious. Um, it sounds counterintuitive to have lobster and burrata, but oh, it's done so well. It's incredible. Um, also, I must bring up the fusilli with uh, braised octopus is a signature dish at Morea. Um, at Ipiori, I would say the uh, spicy crab spaghetti is definitely one of my favorite, as is the um, uh, the caviar uh, appetizer is an amazing one, too. Um, and then when at Marini, which is where I'm actually sitting right now, um, we have a, a, a truffle arancini, which is super good. Um, and what else? We have uh, we also have a uh, a pasta that has um, truffle in it. They're almost like these like really soft little dumplings. Um, uh, very sweet. Um, Wait, so I, do they actually shave the truffle? Because that's you know um, into the pasta. So it's actually the, the shape of the pasta is capoletti and it's got, it's got like a, almost like a capoletti. It's, it's, it's in the, the, I want to say it's like in the actual, um, cream inside. It's almost like a ravioli and it's like okay. inside of it. It's super good. And it's like little like bites, morsels of goodness every bite. <laughs> how's that? How's that some, for some very very articulate descriptions? No, yeah, but, it works. It totally works. <laughs> um, yeah, and then actually down in uh, DC at Nicoletta Italian Kitchen, we have an everything bagel pizza. The crust is everything bagel. It's so good and it's so unique. It's awesome. 
I mean, I feel like that the everything, <laughs> the everything bagel, like seasoning kind of became a trend, yeah. like two years. I don't want totally. to say Yeah. But like, yeah, so the, the Trader that, Joe's one. Yeah, exactly. And, um, <laughs> and like, it became so popular because of TJ's knock on, you know, woo-hoo. Yeah. but, um, <laughs> but totally. you know, it's, it's something I wouldn't have, have thought to put on a pizza. So I'm sure it adds like just that extra oomph. Totally, um, yeah, it's for the, really the crusty and like and like the fluffy crust, like I, you know, uh, with just a little bit of burnt cheese on it, like it's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. It's definitely delicious. We have a really great pizza chef down there, and like that's his expertise. <laughs> pizza, pizza alolo, they're called. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. Now, yeah. I want to also mention the fact that you know, on top of all of the other things that you guys offer online you actually do have recipes for some of the dishes and cocktails that you guys have offered yeah definitely actually the lobster i know the lobster cj recipe is on there which is an amazing um summer recipe um and we definitely have uh, a few of our cocktail recipes as well our um uh, bar programs director kelly verardo is super talented uh constantly creating and um, concocting all different cocktails and so i know a few of her recipes are up there too and highly recommend if you go to altamariagroup.com that you can check them out there yeah now i want to also mention the fact that you guys offer different events in um catering as well yeah, definitely a lot. Uh, most of our restaurants, you can do large format takeout catering, um, so we can we can come to you. Uh, and certainly, um, you know, we also host uh, almost every single one of our locations has really beautiful private dining spaces, so you can host um, events with us and have um, you know all sorts of private um, cocktail fairs or or gatherings um, with us as well. Which is always a positive thing. And I want to reiterate the fact that like there, these are restaurants that have James Beard award recognition. So these are not like catered events where it's like, oh, it's just, you know, like, and not to like knock anybody else, but like, this is an a level and an elevated um, experience where you're going to go in and whether you're having a date night or, you know, having your event catered you're going to be having an amazing meal. So um, with that said, we unfortunately ran out of time. So where can mm-hmm. our listeners find you and fi- you know make reservations and find more information about? Sure. So if you had to um, altamareagroup.com, uh, A-L-T-A-M-A-R-E-A group.com. Um, all our information is there, recipes, all about private dining, as well as reservations for our restaurants in New York City, Miami, New Jersey, New York, um, and internationally as well in D.C. And coming into California as well. Yeah, we'll be opening in Beverly Hills in January uh, 2024. All right. Well, on that note, thank you so much again for joining us on Food Farms and Chefs, Kayla. And I look forward to seeing you out and about again. Great. Thanks so much for having me. No problem. Thank you so much. And we will be right back after the short break. Join us on Food Farms and Chefs radio show, where we highlight everyone from top industry leaders to startups and the farmers who make it all possible with co-hosts Gene Blum and Amaris Pollock with original episodes that debut every Tuesday at 6 p.m. on WWDB 97.5 HD2 
and at www.dbam.com and on your smart speaker. Hi, and welcome back to Food Farms and Chefs. I am very happy to be able to introduce you to Kyle Algaz, who is the owner of Iron Rooster. And you have several locations, but Kyle, thank you for joining us on Food Farms and Chefs. Well, thanks for having me. This is a pleasure. I always do a little bit of research on on everyone, and I didn't have too, too much time to research you because unfortunately my co-host was supposed to lead you. But how did you get started in this business? Did you go to school to for hospitality and business management? So I did not go to school for hospitality and business management. I was um, I was an elementary education major, and I'm sure that there's some part of me that has used that part of my life in this industry. But um, I started in the restaurant business when I was 17. Um, I might have even uh, told a fib about being 18 to get a job, but we won't. <laughs> Hopefully nobody goes back that far. So, you know, I've I've really just cut my teeth in working in restaurants for a number of years. And like most people, I got out of the industry hoping to get a, you know, quote unquote, real job at some point, thinking that there was a, a future uh, to go into something different, but was lucky enough after several years of kind of floating around to uh, figure out that this was my calling. And I was trying to probably deny it for, for many years and realize that I really enjoyed, you know, hospitality. I really enjoyed the restaurant business um, and it's kind of now in my blood. So you're going back 22, 23 years now at this point. So yeah, it's been, it's been quite, quite a run, but I've been, I've been doing this for a long time now. So what made, like, what was the caveat that, you know, made you lean towards owning, like opening up the Iron Rooster? Because I know you opened it in uh, 2014, your first location. Right. Yeah. So 2014 uh, was the original uh, Iron Rooster opened in Annapolis, Maryland. To answer your question, I think I'm I'm stubborn and don't like to be told no. Uh, so I had gotten an opportunity. Well, I shouldn't say I got an opportunity. I really I realized that I, in order for me to kind of maximize where I thought I wanted to be, I thought, you know, I need to open up a restaurant on my own and naively uh, went around to people that I knew that had done it and said, you know, I'm thinking about opening up a restaurant. What are your thoughts? And every single person that I talked to said, don't do it. It's tough. It's a hard business. You know, to just keep doing what you're doing. And I was kind of like, you know, screw you. I, I, I'm going to do what I want. And now I get people that come to me and say, I want to open up my own restaurant. And I say, don't do it. It's the hardest <laughs> business. So they were, they were definitely right you know, in, in that sense, but I, I really kind of didn't like to be told no. And I think that that was kind of the, the catalyst for me of just sort of pushing on and, and, and trudging on And You know, everyone that I've spoken to in this industry kind of has the same story, which is, you know, put your head down, work hard. You know, it's not, you're, you're not going to, it's a, it's a marathon, not a sprint. You're not going to see, you know, the fruits of your labor right off the bat. And, you know, no one that gets into this to, for any success is really kind of looking for the, you know, sit in, sit at a table and be served. It's more like put your, you know, put your head in it, make sure that, you know, you're motivating people to work hard and, and doing the same thing yourself. Yeah. Cause I know I have obviously from doing inter- interviews um, throughout the years I've met and befriended my, my phone 
is full of chefs um, as friends now. But I know that it's very like slim, that margin of um, financial gain from owning businesses. But you actually were able to, you know, create something that was hugely successful and, you know, like opened up several locations in Maryland. And I think you have a, a location in D.C. too. Hopefully by the time this comes out, we will be pretty close to D.C. So, yeah. Which is, you know, I, I the foot traffic you can get from D.C. is just you're going to be busy all the time or that location, I should say. You know, I want to also mention the fact that you did, you know, fight during the pandemic to stay open and you had to pivot like most owners and that had have restaurants. But you had a leg up that that created something a little bit more integral for your positioning on, you know, the methodologies of what went into legislation for rules and regulations, because I think you you sat on the board of directors for Maryland for the Restaurant Association. I did. And I do. You know, it was it's hard to remember back, you know, just even a couple of years ago, just for all the things that everybody's been through at this point. I think one of the things that that sort of served us during during the pandemic was that we had a lot of people. And so that was very helpful that, you know, even though we were going to have to reduce the amount of people that we were going to be able to employ at the time. And it was the scariest time of my professional life when it came to what was going to happen the next day. You know, as quickly as everything shut down, there was no end in sight about how things were going to open back up and no one was giving any advice, you know, restaurant association or otherwise. Everybody was playing by the same rules and everybody was trying to figure it out themselves. And I think what we did first and foremost was that we went to sort of our key players, our key, you know, stakeholders, if you will, in, in our operations and said, you know, we'll protect you as best we can. And we just need to know that you're going to be there. And, you know, I can't say enough about the the, the people that we have, the people in, just in this industry uh, alone that decided to, you know, stick with it. A lot of people got out of the industry during the pandemic because, you know, there was no place for them to go for a lot of the service staff and a lot of the hourly employees. There was really no place for them to go. So they had to go find other employment. And we just went to, to our key people and said, you know, we've got your back. Do you have ours? And they said, yes. And that's paid dividends even even now, you know, a couple of years later, here we are. And a lot of those people are still here. A lot of those people are now thriving. A lot of those people have made them themselves into a higher level manager or, or, or running their own shop at this point. So that was kind of the, the real goal there. But I mean, scary as could be. It was just, it was frightening. I'm sure. And I'm, I'm now going to circle back into your restaurants as they are currently, because you do off wide variety of comfort foods. But I was looking at, at the fact that you, you know, you offer pop tarts and like they're stuffed, like fully, fully stuffed. So um, our listeners obviously tune in for a variety of reasons. But, you know, let's jump into some of uh, the items that you actually offer. Um, yeah. that, you know, bring people in and have continued that support system um, for all of your staff and and for your locations. You know, we're a breakfast all day restaurant and we were kind of, I always like to say that we got into breakfast all day before McDonald's did. So I'm not really sure if they were kind of watching us and deciding that they were going to uh, go that route too. I, I like to think that uh, I don't necessarily believe it, but I think it. Um, breakfast is that habitual meal period that people they usually eat the same things. It's, I found over over several years of doing this that you wake up, you kind of have your cereal, or your eggs, and you like your eggs a certain way. And I had always had this thought and idea of why not take kind of breakfast food and make it different, make it better, make it something that you would want to cook at home if you could. But obviously, for not having a commercial kitchen at your disposal and and looking at kind of how 
how ordering patterns are happening over the course of several years and seeing that people really did enjoy independent restaurants a lot more now. They didn't like the food service side of this. They really wanted to see somebody in the back making their food and they wanted to try different things. I kind of put all of those things together and although not the creator of the Pop-Tart and we don't call them Pop-Tarts, we call them Roost Tarts. Sorry. (laughs) <laughs> for 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 numbers of legal reasons um yes and but it was it was to take food that you recognized and tried to make it bigger and better um our portion sizes are are, are not for uh the faint of heart we're nobody's dietitian i tell people so you know you're gonna get big big portions of, of things and hopefully it's created value as well is that you feel like the food's bigger than you'll get in a lot of restaurants and you know you find the value in the sense that hey i've got a meal for you know a day or two and um you know, kind of seeing just where people were really kind of heading. And so, you know, we, we have a lot of fried chicken. Um, we do fried chicken and waffles and fried chicken and pancakes and fried chicken and French toast. We kind of put fried chicken on everything. Um, and, but at the same time, try to keep some of the staples that people associate with breakfast, you know, biscuits and gravy, um, you know, just a regular two egg breakfast, you know, however you want your eggs cooked but allow for people that kind of wanted something different and not really just kind of the same old oatmeal or the same old, you know, run of the mill egg breakfast to, to be able to kind of go outside of their comfort zone a little bit. And some things have really, really kind of caught on. And um, I've always, when I write menus, I always try to look for things that people would identify with, but maybe not really um, think, Oh, wow. I'd put those things together. So like we do these really cool uh, breakfast nachos um, which is scrambled eggs and sausage and bacon. And we make a queso gravy over the top of it. And it's got guacamole on it. So you can get, you know, nachos at you know, seven or eight o'clock in the morning. And then we did waffle churros, which I'm super proud of because I was trying to think of a way to do churros one day. And I thought, well, I got a waffle maker and I think I can do something similar to a churro with the waffle. And sure enough, uh, it worked. And it's one of the top sellers that we put out every day. And so that's kind of the motivation behind the concept and really kind of looking, I'm always looking ahead and trying to figure out, okay, well, what are the next things that people are going to kind of identify with, or what are the next, you know, menu items that people are starting to see kind of come about and and how can we kind of, you know, use our little niche to, to, to use those things to, to give people something different. Yeah. And, um, and speaking of something different, I have to say like in one of the interviews that I, that I either read about or watched, um, you in you had mentioned the fact that you have happy hour in the morning and you n- gave a nod to the nurses i used to be a vet tech an overnight vet tech and one of the things that we would always do is we would go to the one diner that offered um cocktails so long as you knew knew them that were not just a mimosa or a bloody mary so I, you know, do you still ha- offer that happy hour in the morning? We do uh, every day, uh, Monday through Friday, seven to ten. Uh, <laughs> and how it kind of came about was there. There was a there was a couple of nurses sitting one day at the bar, and this was seven thirty in the morning. And my first question was, "Are you are you starting or are you finishing?" And I was a, <laughs> a little bit uh, worried if they were starting because you know to see to see <laughs> you don't uh, want them going to work like that. <laughs> I I wasn't going to judge them, but I wasn't going to hopefully go to that hospital if that's where they were and they said oh no no we're, we're just getting done and, and I thought well this is interesting here they are they're getting done there's no real place that's open and, and they said well we come here because this is our nighttime yep. and I thought 
that's exactly right. This is your nighttime. And they said, we have no place for us to go when it's, you know, it's seven in the morning and, and you know, every other place is closed and normal happy hours. And most restaurants will start at, you know, four thirty, five o'clock in the afternoon to get kind of that after work traffic. And I thought, well, there's no place for them. And so I said, I got you. I said, so here's what we'll do. And uh, it kind of was born out of that idea of just seeing people that were coming in. And then sure enough, I'm in our Canton location right now. Um, which is, I would say, within three miles of probably five hospitals. Um, there's plenty of hospitals in downtown Baltimore. And you could come in here on a Tuesday or Wednesday morning at 7, 30, 8 o'clock, and the place is just full of, <laughs> of staff that, that works in the hospitals. And it's nurses, it's doctors, it's you know just the regular staff. And I'm really proud of that idea because I knew that there was, a, there was a, a market for it, but also, too, is that it was, it was getting to take care of them. I knew that they were going to have, a, they were going to need some place. And I thought, well, we can be that place for you in the morning. And, you know, we're, we're one of the only restaurants that's really kind of up at this hour doing these types of things. And I thought, well, now they've got a place to go. And, and, you know, we do, we do a couple of cool things, you know, with the hospital um, staff where we've done something called a, a sugar rush, where we'll just show up at emergency rooms and just drop off roostarts and coffee. And you know, we don't tell them it's, it's unannounced. And we, you know, we don't really put much up about it other than to just say, you know, thank you, especially over the last several years. Thank you for taking care of us. Yeah. And, you know, anything that we can kind of do to, to take care of them is kind of the goal. That is very cool. So, I mean, as we move forward, you had mentioned that you're, you know, looking to open up a DC lo- or a location that's close to DC. Um, you know, how, how can we sell help, help you celebrate that? Um, how can our listeners come out and, you know, celebrate it with you and do you offer any specials? Uh, so besides the happy hour, um, we're always uh, running different specials when it comes to our, to our menu. Uh, we've got, we change the menu a couple of times a year, typically seasonal. So we'll do one in the spring, summer and one in the fall, winter. Um, you know, from a support perspective, whenever anyone's in town, you know, we've got four locations, hopefully the fifth one will be open here shortly. And, you know, just the idea of kind of coming in and and celebrating breakfast is kind of one of those neat brunch, especially is one of those neat meal periods where it's really a get together, you know, dinner is kind of that, I got to get dinner after work, or I got to get dinner, you know, I just work a long day, you know, what am I eating today? And obviously, there's so many restaurants out there now. And when I was a a kid, you know, going out to eat was always a big deal, really to go out to breakfast, you know, it's kind of difficult, you'd really kind of go to the, you know, the chains that were out there and, you know, celebrate with pancakes or waffles, and then it was kind of it. And so for us, it just thought, well, we can we can really blow this up by doing something that that really appeals to a lot of different segments, whether it's, you know, families or or people that are out on a first date. A brunch is always a great first date to kind of, you know, get during the day and mimosas and bloodies. And we make all, you know, we have a lot of signature cocktails, iron crushes and uh, things along along that line. So, you know, from a from a, a supportive perspective, yeah, any any of those times um, really can can be something interesting and different for for any of your your listeners to come in and see us we're always excited to see new people um you know we're we're pretty far reaching at this point we've got people that i had a a guest of mine say that he was sitting in a hot tub in hawaii one time and the guy knew that he was from maryland and he said oh have you ever been to the iron rooster and he was like oh my god that's my favorite place and i was like <laughs> oh well, that, that's pretty neat you're hearing about the story and my parents are from florida i live in florida and they, my dad was wearing an Iron Rooster shirt one day in the elevator somewhere, and the lady said, "Oh my gosh, Iron Rooster!" And so I was like, "Wow, <laughs> that's pretty, pretty far-reaching at this point." So it's pretty cool. 
Yeah, that is very cool. And I mean, it's, it's also like you're located in a very, um, tourist friendly area. So obviously like people are going to stay at a hotel and run around, look at, you know, all the, see the sites, um, but they're going to get hungry. Either they're going to wake up and be hungry and want, you know, to fuel up for the rest of the day, or they're going to like midday dinner time, be like, I need something to eat. Um, and you, yeah. And, and you don't always want dinner during dinner time. I frequently eat cereal, like a bowl of cereal for dinner, just because I'm like, I don't feel like cooking. (laughs) So that's how the idea was sort of born was, was people coming to me uh, and saying, you know, I really enjoyed (laughs) breakfast for dinner. Um, and I, to be honest with you, I'm not a big breakfast fan for myself. I'm, I don't really like eggs or pancakes or French toast. It's not my favorite food style. Um, but I knew that I wasn't opening this for me. I knew that I was opening it for, for guests and for people to come in. And it's always kind of cool to see people eating pancakes for dinner uh, yeah. or, you know, ordering off the French toast, you know, at, at dinner time. And uh, we always wanted the idea to be, you know, uh, several people could come in at once and get something. You know, you weren't kind of pigeonholed into to one food style, whether it was barbecue or Italian or Mexican, or you just like, well, I'm going to have to try to find something. We thought, you know, let's do something where it can be eclectic enough that a group of people can all get something different. And if you're in the mood for breakfast and I'm in the mood for dinner, we can still go out to eat and, you know, have a good time and and not feel like, oh, well, I kind of had to choose, Uh, you know, you get to kind of decide, all right, well, this is what I want today. And this is what you want today and kind of make it work. Yes. And we unfortunately ran out of time because we were having so much fun, but where can people bring home the bacon? um at at the iron rooster well so we're always making bacon Uh, there's one for you um and you can find us um obviously on social we're at iron rooster all day on on all of our social platforms um iron dash rooster is our website uh there you can find all of our menus we offer a full menus for takeout for delivery Uh, we pivoted during the pandemic we really never offered takeout or delivery uh prior to the pandemic and really kind of pivoted during during the pandemic to really open up that that um, that meal period for people. So, yeah, we're all we're all over social. We're always happy to see new people come through the door. Uh, typically, you know, we're giving away roost tarts for your birthday or for first time guests. So you can always come in. You can check on our flavors. We run usually typically five flavors a day of our of our famous roost tarts that and we offer nationwide shipping on those roost tarts as well. So you can go to our website and we will pack one up or five and send them out to you uh, across the USA. All right. Well, thank you so much, Kyle, for joining us on Food Farms and Chefs. And I hope to see you soon because you're driving distance for me. Yes. Awesome. Amherst, it was a pleasure to meet you as well. Thanks for having me. All right. And we will be right back after this short break. To become a sponsor of Food Farms and Chefs and have your business or event promoted on two radio stations in Philadelphia that play on Tuesdays during Drive Time Radio and on a station in New York on Fridays at 1 p.m., you can email us at foodfarmsandchefs at yahoo.com, ibfoodie2 at yahoo.com, or arpolicus at gmail.com. Hi, and welcome back to Food Farms and Chefs. I am so excited to introduce you to somebody who is making waves and going to make your summer vacation a little bit easier. Uh, Scott Noy, who is the owner of Chef's Dad's Table, is with us on Food Farms and Chefs. Scott, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having us. 
<laughs> no problem. So, um, I'm going to go a little bit into your history because, you know, you, you did, um, learn and graduate with a culinary arts and management degree, uh, from Johnson and Wales. What was that like transitioning from, you know, graduating into getting into the business world and into the restaurant, um, scene? Well, I'll tell you the, the college curriculum was rigorous, but it was nothing like the real world education <laughs> that I got. That was really where uh, you learn and you, you put everything together. But it was great. It, it, it gave me a real life application and everything that was learned in my academics, I, I could utilize and be productive. Yeah. And so I know that you worked um, pre-pandemic, you had worked at Widener uh, as well as running a summer camp. Um, so, you you know, you're not you're, you're not a spring chicken when it comes to teaching and, you know, working within the culinary industry. Um, but what was it like during that time, during the pandemic, like for you, where you had to transition, um, from, you know, working full-time to, you know, being at home? Well, I'll tell you, uh, I didn't actually work that long during COVID because when COVID started, I lost my job at Widener University and I also lost my job at the summer camp teaching uh, culinary because the summer camp closed and Widener switched to online classes. So I lost both my jobs and I quickly pivoted to getting an emergency teaching certification for the state of Pennsylvania and I became a substitute teacher. Even though the kids were homeschooled and learning in pods, I participated in the learning curriculum. And I immediately realized that what was missing from the students' education was all of the special curriculum that was taken away from them. They no longer had arts and crafts. They no longer had music. They no longer had physical education. All of that stuff was was taken away and everything was just academics, academics, academics. And rightfully so, because that's all that the schools could handle at that point in time when they had to switch over to the Zoom. So in the course of teaching, we incorporated, or I incorporated, arts and crafts and physical education and music. And one other thing that we incorporated was cooking. And we immediately realized the students took to the cooking like nothing else. They loved it. From that, we added in math to our cooking curriculum. And we added in science because, you know, when you're baking, there's there's all sorts of chemical reactions going on. When we're measuring and, and weighing, there's, there's mathematic concepts going on there. When we're reading and writing recipes, there's language concepts there. And when we're studying other cultures and cuisines, that's history and geography. So we really put all that together. And that was the catalyst of what is now known as Chef Dad's Table. <laughs> And I mean, it's, it's really important to like give you a nod because a lot of people during the pandemic, uh, were taking online cooking classes because they were looking for something to do. And you kind of saw a niche, a wool, a need, I should say of that niche and, you know, incorporated it into the world of education. And I don't know too many kids who, who aren't at mom's apron or dad's apron, you know, wanting to, you know, taste or put their hands in something. So it's kind of interesting that you were able to, to find that little bubble of um, inspiration and, you know, grow it, grow it like a focaccia bubble. And like, so that it, uh, so that it bakes and, you know, bakes evenly and comes out with fruit, you know, you, a fruit of your labor with 
all of that said, I know that you offer a variety, like different um, age groups get to learn at different levels, obviously. And I, I saw one of the interviews that you were in and you read a book. I'm trying to find my notes. Oh, give a mouse a cookie. You read, give a mouse a cookie, and then you teach them something. So what, what is it like, you know, with the little, little ones, your youngest age group? Yeah, uh, primarily we break our classes down into three age groups, our toddlers, and then ages five through 10, and then 11 and up. And that usually goes to about age 13 or 14. With our youngest learners, our toddlers, we're certainly not going to get them into the kitchen. First of all, they can't even reach the countertop. (laughs) (laughs) So we use small tables and small chairs for them. And we reinforce what they're currently learning. We talk about colors. We talk about shapes. We talk about uh, our senses, tasting and smelling and feeling and touching. And in your example, if we were to be reading them the book, if you give a mouse a cookie, at the end of the story, what do you think we're going to do? We're going to make cookie dough and we're going to make chocolate chip cookies and we're going to make them in in the shapes of a circle or we're going to roll them with our hands. We're going to touch and squeeze and feel. And that's what they're going to get out of it. Which is good because, you know, you need it's engaging for them. It's, you know kind of like setting off all those sensors, sensory receptors in their brain. Um, But then it's the added bonus of like, I need these cookies. Look, mom, you know, you're not having a child who's bringing home artwork. You're having a child who's bringing you home cookies. It's a, it's a big uh, morale booster. It increases their confidence and their self-esteem. They learn to work in teams. They learn to to share and build friendships and and socialization. It's all of that. Now, since you do offer these classes, like through age, you're saying, you know, up to like about 14, do you see your pods? I want to say, because I think that's what they're called. The um, different classrooms are called pods. Um, Do you see them, you know, graduating into the next age group? Yeah, um, we call them kitchen labs. Okay. (laughs) Classrooms and kitchen labs. We have a classroom and then we have a kitchen lab. And we've only been doing this for two and a half years. So the only students that have moved up have been those that have aged out into the next group. Okay. And, uh, but we do, what we do see is we have one child start and then in a few weeks, a sibling the parent calls and says, oh, my gosh, my child has come home, talked about this. And, you know, their my, their sister or brother wants to join also because they can't stop talking about it. And they bring home all the food and they want to taste it. And you know, that we do see happening. And we do see our families uh, moving from maybe doing just an after school class once in a while to doing multiple classes or signing up for a week of summer camp. And, um, you know, and I think it's also important because I saw on your site that you all, you know, you also accept um, intellectual and developmentally um, dis- disability yeah. um, individuals as well. And I think that that's, you know, key too, because one of the things that's super helpful for anybody who is growing up with a disability is to be able to have the the, the hands-on experience because you have, you know, moved in from from zoom into um the actual kitchen as you said in person um and for them to be able to to actually see taste touch um helps with their learning abilities as well absolutely we do work with uh, primarily two groups one is the best buddies which is a national organization that almost every major city has and and there are chapters in a lot of the high school middle schools and high schools and what that does is pair up an individual that does have some type of disability with a able-bodied person and someone that can help them and partner with them and uh, we also work with an organization called 
exceptional tours, which does different types of outings and trips and tours and classes for adults that have uh, physical and intellectual disabilities. We work with those two groups and we try to incorporate our mainstream, some of the students into our regular classes. And that's done through consultation with the families and sometimes doing a, an interview and having them come and visit our class and see where they would fit best. But we we do do all of those things. Which I is extremely, like, I love the fact that you do that. Now we're going to move into, it is warm out. It's the summer. You know, parents are like, I have to go to work. What am I going to do? You offer classes uh, Monday through, I believe, Thursday, Thursday. or Friday? Okay. Monday through Thursday. Yes, we do. <laughs> our, our flexible is very, very scheduled. It's very, very flexible. We have uh, half day sessions, which are nine to 12. We have full day sessions, which are nine to three. And you can pick and choose. You can come one day, one week, one day, another week, a half a day one week, a full day one week, you can come a whole week, Monday through Thursday. And it's just based upon what's available on our schedule. We do have a calendar and it shows you the availability that uh, you can uh, you can look at when you register. So, you know, for parents that are, you know, listening out there, what would you typically, you know, offer for the the students that are coming in to to learn to cook? Because I know that you also offer like the history of cuisines and whatnot. And I saw like different programs that you offer. So walk us through some of the stuff that are is offered during this camp. Our, our summer camp is more of a generalized uh, um, curriculum. It's not just based on learning how to cook. We we teach life skills and our students learn the life skills. Just because we teach them doesn't mean they pick it up and they learn it, but they, <laughs> they do. And we can see that by the end of the day, by the end of the week, because you watch them and you see what they're doing. Now they're learning knife skills. They're learning about nutrition. They're learning safety and sanitation. They're learning about international cuisine and, and cultures. Uh, they're learning about food insecurity which is becoming a big deal in our culture. Uh, this week, we're talking about fresh versus frozen. We we have a garden on site that we maintain, and the kids come out and we work in the garden. Uh, we talk about uh, different types of diets, uh, vegan, vegetarian, uh, halal, gluten-free, kosher. We talk about those different things. And then, of course, there is the cooking aspect of it. <laughs> Absolutely. So I, I saw like a quick video of first so gentle and patient with the children. I believe you were like rolling. I'm actually not quite sure what it was that you were rolling, but it was, um, it almost looked like cheese with some, uh, uh, like a protein in there with veggies, but you were yes. rolling it up. I think a, a lasagna roll up of, of some sort. It was, it was a, a potato, a beef and potatoes, a scallop beef and potato roll up. It's a nice. layer of scallop potatoes. And then you put cheese on top of it. And then you put either the ground beef or the ground chicken. And then you gently <laughs> roll it up like a jelly roll. I love the fact that you were like having each of the students, you know, take a turn at rolling the, the item. One of the videos you, you stopped them and you were like, no, no, go wash your hands first. So <laughs> I just thought that was so endearing. <laughs> but, yes, um, I, I, you know, all of our instructors try to keep our eyes everywhere and what the kids are doing. But sanitation and safety is a very, very integral part of our curriculum. And, you know, not only do they learn how to make sure that everything's safe to eat, Pre, you also, you know, try to teach some life skills of like, okay, we we made all these messes, let's clean it up. Yeah, they they don't do a great job at it, but everybody has a job, and you are responsible for wiping down the table, using a push broom, helping us empty the trash, dry some dishes. 
because that's part of the responsibility and part of our team. And I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to like nudge it towards anything, but I know that parents are going to like hear that and be like, wait, they're learning how to clean up. <laughs> <laughs> they aren't going to do it when they come home, trust me, but they know that it's part of our day. Mm -hmm. But it is integral to, uh, to, for them to learn that life skill too, because, you know, it's obviously like a responsibility and I'm sure that they're having fun too while they're doing it, even Absolutely. if it's cleanup, but like the cooking part of it. Now, do, you know, do the students, do they get to take home some of the stuff that they make? They can take home whatever they don't eat in class. Sometimes <laughs> there's a lot to go home and sometimes there's nothing to go home, but we do we do make uh, extras and we encourage every student to at least take a little taste. They don't have to swallow it, just taste it. They can spit it out, but we do encourage them to try something. And for the most part, when they're involved from the beginning process to the end, they're more uh, likely to at least taste it and yeah, have yeah. a favorable result. But absolutely, <laughs> we do want our students to take home what they've made and show their family and be proud and explain to them what it is and what we did rather than how was camp today? Yep. Fine. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, if they're bringing home the food, as long as it makes it all the way home, <laughs> I would think that that would be a big bragging, right. You know, for, for a student. Cause I know if I, you know, when I was little, I probably would have just been like, look, look what, but I've been always, I've always been a foodie. So uh, <laughs> you're starting them out young, which is, you know, is, is, an appropriate life skill because opening up those children's palates too. Like there's so many people who as children, they're not exposed to, you know, a variety of cuisines and therefore they would, you know, they grow up and they don't know when a lot of people who are older that haven't been exposed to those, those th at different um, cultures and cuisines kind of myopically like remain in, in their lane and are afraid to taste and try, but you're that's kind what you of grew up with. That's well, that's all, you know. Yeah. And so you're kind of also opening up their, their eyes as far as, you know, the world is concerned. Like there are so many options out there. What is it? Like, what are some of the more popular items that that kids have made, your students have made that kind of you saw like an expression change? Well, I'll tell you, our all time, our all time fan favorite for our younger classes is the edible chocolate chip cookie dough. <laughs> <laughs> but it comes with a huge amount of uh, learning and knowledge because we teach them that in order to have edible chocolate chip cookie dough, we cannot have eggs yep. and we have to cook our flour to a certain temperature in order for it to be safe to eat and not contain salmonella. That is our, uh, our fan favorite and our most requested recipe. Almost every class wants to do it. Even if it doesn't fit into the curriculum, they heard from somebody <laughs> that we have to try it. So we do. Yes. But in our classes that we have during the school year, we have one class in particular, which uh, sometimes it's uh, called around the world. Sometimes it's called let's bake, depending upon you know, what we're doing. And what we do is we learn uh, about different cultures and cuisines around the world. We pick a region of the country. We pick a region of the world. We pick a particular area. We learn about the food of that area, what's, what's native to them, what's not native to them. How did we learn about that food in America. How do we taste it here in America? How did it come to America? And then we pick a few things and we make something native to that area or that region. Oh, I love that. I love that idea. And I love the fact that you're, you really are exposing, you know, everyone to something that is just beneficial all around. Um, and 
but we unfortunately are actually out of time. So how can um, our listeners find you online and sign up uh, their students to take one of your classes or take your whole summer program? It's very easy. Our company name is Chef Dad's Table. Our website is chefdadstable.com. Our Facebook page is Chef Dad's Table. And our Instagram is Chef Dad's Table. You can <laughs> always right. reach me anytime. My name is Scott Noy. Am I allowed to give my phone number? Uh, if, if you feel comfortable with it, go for sure. it. You can reach me. My phone number is 610-505-5617. All right. Thank you so much for joining us, Scott, on Food Farms and Chefs. Thanks very much for having me. I appreciate your time. No Take problem. care now. Bye-bye. Bye. To listen to the rest of Food Farms and Chefs, tune your HD radio to 97.5 WPEN HD2 or stream live from WWDBAM.com.